Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hi, I'm Charles. I'm a pastor, and with me today is Andrea Schwartz, and today is January the 5th, 2018. Andrea, how are you today? I am good, and I am a teacher and a mentor after having been a homeschool mom for a very long time. Now I focus my attention on helping women and families to be more faithful to God's call in their life. All right, well, we're going to be doing some discussion in these podcasts, and today we're going to be starting out talking about some issues that some people are very concerned about in our society and in everyday life, and that is the fact that we seem to be continually under surveillance. We seem to be watched at every corner, cameras on every street corner. If you go to an airport, you know what that's like, and a lot of people have questions, at least some people do, about how we, how we got to this point in our society. And so we're going to start off by talking about that issue and see where it leads us. And a lot of people would say, well, there's a trade-off. We can have privacy or we can have security. So some people are willing to give up that privacy for security. Do you think they actually get security with all these measures? Well, I think uh, that's part of the problem is that for all of the uh, misery that we have to endure because of the surveillance and the fact that we're continually being watched or cajoled or, you know, marshaled into this direction or other, really the statistics show we really aren't that much more secure. And, you know, I was thinking about something that I believe it was one of the founding fathers. I believe it was Robert Winthrop. And he says this, if I can just quote him, he was a speaker of the House of the U.S. House of Representatives. He said, men in a word must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. And he wrote those words several hundred years ago. And of course, in his day, the bayonet was primarily coming from the British Empire. It was not as technologically advanced, but our forefathers and mothers were facing the same challenge. It was no mistake that these men who were coming from a solidly biblical worldview recognized the threat of a lack of self-government. People ask this question about why is our society like this? The real question is, is why don't people govern themselves in such a way that it doesn't have to be that way? And I think that's very clearly reflected in that statement from Robert Winthrop. The whole premise of a biblical way of living, as opposed to a non-biblical one, is that we govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Bible. And history has shown time and again, and we're living in the middle of it right now, that if you don't do that, uh, and as he implies, somebody else will come along and do it for you. Exactly. I think this, I think that so many people don't have a real concept that God's word calls them to self-discipline, self-control, and self-government. They're so used to the nanny state, and I don't know who coined that term, but it's a good one. Why do people have a nanny? Well, they can't be there with their children, and they want to make sure the children don't kill themselves or each other. They're really not interested in the nanny shaping a worldview and a life view. In too many cases, the person who ends up being the nanny is certainly not the highest paid person within the society. So we have this idea that as long as we're safe, everything else is okay. 
But as we talked earlier and, and how we even named this podcast out of the question, that very question on what do we do with the surveillance state, the solution or the answer really is going to come as we ask additional questions. How do you define that? What does it look like? What are you basing it on? And I know for women, especially the women I'm in touch with, who mostly are wives, mothers, grandmothers, sisters, you know, people who are actively looking to serve God, and I'm very blessed to have that kind of audience, their concern is that they don't want to see bad things happen to those they love. So the trade-off seems to be a good one, except it's reflective of the fact that their understanding of the Bible, initially anyway, is very limited. Yeah, and I, I think about um, an incident that happened many, many years ago in my life. I was actually engaged in a chat online with some people that I grew up with in the city where I, I was born. We have a special Facebook page, and some of us went to the same elementary school and junior high school. That school is still there, but years ago, and I'm talking like in the 1960s, there was an old wooden house on the property. And I don't know where it came from or why it was there. I mean, the building, the school itself had been built in the 50s. Somebody posted a note. Does anybody remember that old house? I remember it very well. And one reason I do is because there was a Pee Wee League baseball game going on at the time. And right in the middle of the game, some kid came running up from down that part of the, the school campus where that old house was, screaming and yelling that his little brother had gotten lodged. He was in the house and he shouldn't have been. It was an abandoned house, and his brother had gotten lodged in the, the chimney or a closet or something. Well, the entire ball game stopped. The adults and the kids rushed down there and rescued the little boy. And I got to thinking about that. You know, these are the real first responders. These are the people who really get things done. We don't need to rely on tax-supported government officials, and our ancestors certainly never did that. And I think that this is something we're missing and that we've lost in our culture and our society men and women both not stepping up to the plate and taking ownership and responsibility for something as important as simple as rescuing a little kid who's gotten stuck in a closet. We don't need the police. We don't need the NSA. But of course, the state has a vested interest in us not doing that, unfortunately. And this is where the challenge comes in. And that's another question that comes out of this bigger question is, how do we get to that point where we become self-reliant and we recognize ourselves as free men and women under God and according to biblical law. And the key there is free under God. You can't be free if it's not under God, because then you have a multiplicity of gods, and you have to kind of figure out what God, that God thinks or what another God thinks. And so when it comes right down to it, we're really talking about the difference between being sane and insane. One of my favorite authors, instead of using the customary definitions of sanity and insanity, basically says, sanity is taking responsibility and governing yourself. And insanity is the quintessential drive and living out of no responsibility. And so if when you look at it from that point of view, and you look at the purpose of God's law in the life of the believer, you're looking at... God saying, okay, you're now in my family. How should you then live? Oh, I'm going to tell you that too. And so when you talk about these first responders who went out to help the person, today I'm almost positive the first thing would be somebody call 911. And then yes. sometimes people being afraid 
to go in, jump in, and do it. Because number one, they're sure they're not trained. You have to be specially trained to get a kid out of a closet or a kid out of a <laughs> chimney. And number two, we're so concerned with what if I do it wrong? Will I be sued? That mentality comes out of a general lack of responsibility, remaining children in our orientation and leave it to the grown-ups. So why do we think the police or the legislature, they're the grown-ups. We're just too stupid to obviously figure this stuff out ourselves. Yes, and I think that that is a way of thinking and a way of living that has gradually come to replace the mentality and the way of living of just people within my generation and the generation before. And uh, sort of like the illustration of the uh, the boiling frog, you know, you throw the frog in the boiling hot water, he jumps out. But if you gradually raise the temperature, he boils to death without even realizing it. I remember um, reading an essay written, it was actually a speech written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He had won the Templeton Prize for Religion. Something very remarkable, he said, among many others, was that he said, if you, and I mean, he, he was describing, you know, the 1970s, I think, but he said, if you were to go back in time and describe the modern world to our ancestors w without embellishing anything, just simply describe how life runs, they would throw up their arms and say, you are describing the apocalypse. You are describing right. the end of the world. And um, I think that's something that we don't realize is that we're living in that kind of dystopian world, but it doesn't look like that to us. But it would immediately be obvious to our ancestors. The question is, well, how did we get there and where can we get out? I, I, I mentioned this house. I'll be clear, I think, from the reference I made. It was a public school. And I was listening to somebody mention, talking about this, and I was reflecting on my own experience going to that school as a child. Every day we had prayer over the PA system. The Lord's Prayer or the principal or a student would read something from the Beatitudes or something like that. And then we would stand and pledge allegiance to the state. But then, of course, everything that unfolded the rest of the day was thoroughly humanistic. And so this was a way that hundreds and thousands and uh, millions of American school kids in individual states could have their worldview replaced, even though it looked like it was, quote, Christian, just because you said a prayer at the beginning. But what is the most important is what's being fed into the mind. And, uh, you know, I think you and I both know, and maybe some of our listeners do, the uh, the government school systems have been the main conduit to that. And, of course, the media, too. Somebody once described this, and I thought this was another good illustration, how in modern times, it's the media that actually thinks for us. There's sort of a connection that we have, in, in, for lack of a better illustration, in a matrix-like scenario. And I hear this all the time. I, I was listening to a guy on the radio recently. He hosts a, a Christian talk show in the area where I live. And uh, th this guy has seminary degrees. He teaches at a denominational college. And he said something like this. He said, that talking about the greatness of America, quote-unquote, he said, what other country invades another country, rebuilds it, and gives it back to the people better than they found it? And I'm thinking to myself, where in the world are you getting this from? This is not biblical. It's not constitutional. This is, this is Fox News thinking out loud through this man's voice. Exactly. It used to be that people, the, the stream of consciousness, if I can use that terminology, that informed people's thinking was a broadly, however imperfectly held, biblical worldview. You could tell somebody, behave and be good, and they would have some concept of what that meant. But now, now that's all been replaced by media thinking. And so 
you get the children into compulsory education and you convince parents, those who profess belief in Jesus Christ and believing the Bible from cover to cover, to put their children in the schools. And if they don't, there's going to be problems. So they avoid the problem. I'll just put them in school, but we'll take them to church. For those like you and me who remember a culture based on biblical foundations, there was money in the bank, so to speak. You know, we could still draw off the Christian capital. How did we change? After all, our first influences weren't like the first influences that our children are getting. Well, then the media filled in. And I remember how radical a success I came to understand it had been when a woman who was close to me and my family was commenting about another relative who was about to be involved with somebody that this woman didn't approve of. And what she said was, they should live together rather than get married so that they don't have to get a divorce. Yes. So the whole concept of safe sin, see, we're back to that security thing. If we are going to violate God's law in terms of fornication, for example, then just don't get pregnant. You see, the problem isn't the fornication. The problem is the obvious results of that fornication. So if you avoid that, we can keep up appearances. So it's a combination of keeping up appearances so that those around us don't think ill of us. And this idea that we're going to make something and things that God says will keep people out of heaven, we're going to make those safer. Yes, and part of that problem within the church, and I've seen this as a pastor, is the influence of what, in a more technical sense, is called pietistic thinking, which is the idea that what matters is my interior spiritual life. That's what God is most concerned about. And my physical activities, although, yes, you know, they're the Ten Commandments, but look, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm going to break those commandments from time to time, but as long as the Lord knows my heart, et cetera, et cetera. And this, I think, has been one conduit within the churches for people having a lack of awareness or commitment to living a principled life of obedience to what God calls us to do. And I was reflecting on this, uh, I'm kind of doing some reminiscing here, but, you know, again, I mentioned the, the 1960s, the 70s. One of the things that happened in my generation and, and yours is th there was this rejection among younger people of my generation of traditional religion. And yet, how many did we see in different parts of the country glom on to these weird Eastern religions where the regimentation and the legalistic requirements were far more severe? People shaving their heads and becoming vegetarians to be Hare Krishnas or... You know, I knew I knew a guy that got involved with the the Reverend Moon and the Unification Church, and I mean that guy went from just a normal, average guy to where he was like he his eyes had glassed over, wasn't even the same person after they had him for a couple of weeks. But that same person, well, no, no, I, you know, the Bible is full of nonsense, and you know, the God is an evil, judgmental God. By all means, let me jump over into this other thing that controls my life far more severely and and demands me obey certain rules and regulations. You're so right because we don't want the restraints that God places on us. And so in a move to be independent and autonomous, we go out and we get much more restraint, much more regulations that the average person is truly more concerned with getting a ticket being in the commuter lane than they are for offending the living God. 
Yes. You combine that with the false theology that says, no matter what I do, God is happy. So, so God is not even like your jolly old grandpa, because your jolly old grandpa, if you go in and spit at him, isn't going to smile at you. <laughs> and we have people spitting at God and taking the first great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. How many people can honestly say they do that? They'll say, well, I do a lot of it most of the time, but there's no concern that they're offending God. They are much more inclined to not offend groups and, and ideologies that the Bible clearly says are wrong, uses the very extreme term of abomination. We don't want to offend them. We don't want to, we don't want to not love on them, which is an expression that drives me nuts. <laughs> Because love, according to Jesus, is the fulfilling of the law. So we're going to nod and we're going to go, this is all fine in an effort to win you to something that apparently a lot of these people don't really even believe. And something about the apocalyptic nature of a lot of the media. I think people have become convinced we're nowhere near that place where all the buildings are destroyed and the animals are taking over and, and you know, people are being brutal. Because you see, we have Facebook, we have the internet, we have modern conveniences, we have electric cars, we've got all this stuff. We are not in an apocalyptic situation because they've told us what an apocalyptic situation looks like, and it doesn't look at all like this. If, in fact, that scenario is in some shape in our future, people will have already been conditioned to accept it on some level. But the point I was trying to make was that we are, in fact, in that scenario, when you look at it from the standpoint of a, a society and a culture that's based on biblical principles where people govern themselves according to God's standard. And I think, again, it goes back to this issue of pietism. Yes, I, God knows I, I love him and I, you know, God loves me, but that's another one of these terms that has been vacated of any meaning or been replaced by something else. And it's easy enough, I think, for people to understand this. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not for the millennial generation. I don't know. But if a man says to his wife, I love you, and then proceeds to commit adultery, there, there's, a, there's a disconnect. And if he's confronted with, oh, yes, but I still love you. But then he continues to commit adultery. You see, they, they don't, they, they, one cancels out the other. You, you just can't keep, if, if there's any meaning to words or anything. Right, and since we've moved into a relativistic environment, then the words can mean what you want them to mean. So I've been at weddings where it's as long as we both shall love. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. I, it's like I, I wish you had said that before I bought the gift because I would have kept my money because you don't plan to make this permanent. Another common thing, aside from what I still love you, how many times do we see depicted in media the sympathetic character telling the wife or the husband it didn't mean anything. Yeah. I, I, I did carry on this affair, so we don't even call it adultery anymore. Let's just call it an affair. But it didn't mean anything. That's supposed to make the person feel better? You trashed our relationship over something that didn't mean anything? Well, they're already doing that to God. They're already discounting his word. Why should anybody be surprised that they'll disavow the promise they made until death do us part, whether or not they meant it, but they'll, if they use traditional vows, because what they want is a world where they get to determine right and wrong and that God gives them a pass. 
reminded of a video series that I used to use in premarital counseling by the now late, may he rest in peace, R.C. Sproul. He had a thing on Christian marriage. I think it's probably still available. But in that video series, following up on what you just mentioned, he tells of an occasion where during one of the several brief times when he was actually a pastor, he was involved in a, in a counseling situation with a husband and wife where there had been infidelity. It was, I don't remember which of the spouses, but it was one spouse and a lover and the other spouse. And he said that um, in one of the conversations with the so-called, quote, guilty party, he was told, look, this is just between me, my wife, and my lover. It's nobody else's business. And he said, what that person didn't know was that I had my appointment book full of appointments from uncles, aunts, cousins, neighbors who all had been impacted by the, the breaking up of this marriage. As much as I like and I'd identify with the term libertarian, but I'll put the word Christian in front of it, I don't believe a, biblically there's any such thing as a victimless crime. Unless you live on a planet by yourself, anything that you do that compromises the, the legal standard that God has given us in Scripture is going to affect other people around you in some way, maybe not within five minutes after you've done whatever it is, but sooner or later there will be ripple effects and this is another thing that I think that affects the way that our society has decayed to the point where people are happy to have the nanny state look after them rather than simply take up the responsibility and the hard work to put their shoulder to the wheel and obey what God tells them to do according to his standards. So what you're saying is you're saying that God created a social order according to his law, and when it's violated, there are victims. But we want to say, I don't see it get over it, whatever it is, I'm going to do things my way. And so what we have are self-centered individuals, self-absorbed, and they're not really in, even in a position to treat other people the way they want to be treated because they can't do the second great commandment unless they've embraced the first one. How do I know how to treat you with love if I don't know how God says, I'm supposed to treat you. I'm not supposed to lie about you. I'm not supposed to take your stuff. I'm not supposed to destroy your family. But as long as we convince people that you've got to be you and you'd have no ties, and especially with children and their parents, your parents had you up until a certain point, and now you can't tell me what to do anymore. Well, a parent who understood God's ownership of themselves and the family know that they were always saying or should have been saying thus saith the lord they're they're not right as parents because i'm bigger i have more money i can send you to your room they're under authority and they were hopefully trying to teach their children they were under authority because it's inescapable you're gonna have an authority and so going back to our original discussion people are comfortable having the state as their authority because there's lots of wiggle room. How do you not tell the IRS everything that you made? Or how do you get away from that speeding ticket? And how do you cajole the officer? Well, they've been doing that to God for years. That's why Christians uniformly, serious-minded Christians who know the law, are usually the best citizens of any jurisdiction because they understand authority. They're not trying to get away from authority. They're trying to obey lawful authority. The issue of the family influence is a key one, and again, reflecting for a moment on my own experience, one thing that I 
became very strikingly aware of in my own life in terms of formative influence, in terms of the, quote, voice of authority, is that when I look back on my childhood and teenage years, the most important thing to me in terms of the things that I remember most all revolved around school, not around the family. All my friends were there. All my memories are there. The family was the least important thing. I mean, I still tell people, <laughs> you know, one of the saddest days of my life is when I graduated from high school because I would not have that support system anymore. I would not have that grouping of people anymore. People would say, well, that's okay. That's understandable. But no, it's not okay. It's not supposed to be that way. So that the idea of what it means to be moral and lawful, like you said, you, you, law is inescapable. And as a great theologian said, when you identify the source of law in society, you've identified the God of that society. This is the, the recognition that people have is that as long as I'm doing what the state tells me to do, that's a more real presence in my life than God's presence. Because, okay, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, God and the state are basically the same thing, aren't they? If the, if the political party I think is the best is in power, then isn't God happy? And I'm basically doing what God wants me to do by voting this way or whatever that thing, supporting this legislation. And it's in some ways it parallels ancient Rome. As long as you sprinkle the incense to Caesar, we don't care what you do. We don't care about your sex life. We don't care about your marriage life. We don't care about your religion. Worship whatever God you want. Just, just don't dare step outside the boundaries of the, the law that, and the, the God that we have put before you, which is Caesar. And I think this has been the, uh, one of the real, real problems you know, among so-called Christians and people who claim to be following God. They're actually following a, a different God than the God of the Bible, and they haven't figured that out. And I think the point you made about how sad people get when high school is over. Yes. It, it's kind of interesting. High school is over right around the time the state tells you you're no longer a child and you can make decisions for yourself. And so the authority of the family really is acknowledged, but it's acknowledged in a limited way. And if you look back 20 years ago, parents could still make some decisions do they want to vaccinate or not? Do they want their children to be exposed to this particular ideology or not? The state I live in, that's all gone the way of we'll tell you what to do. And if you don't do it, now you're going to have to worry about losing your children, which we don't really think you own anyway or steward it. But we don't want to feed them and clothe them. And we want, we want to deal with them when they're sick. So you just turn them over to us most of the hours of their life. And then they'll have this sense of community attached to the school. Their family will be replaced. So what happens post high school is that they lose their moorings. So they go off to college. They start doing things that they never would have done when they had to go home to their parents' house. The parents are all trying to get them into a good college and sending the children away. And it's in those years that addictions begin, promiscuity begins things of that nature. And, and so we wonder what's happening with the social order. How come things are so bad? Because it was an intentional move of statism. Mm -hmm. It wasn't accidental. Things like sex education in schools happening at the same time by removing God from the schools, removing the Bible from the schools, that the acceptable way to say Jesus Christ is if you stub your toe, but please don't give him credit for anything. 
in your life. See, it was systematic. And you talked about the frog in the pot of boiling water. How many people say, well, I got used to it. I can live with it. Yes. And we can bemoan it. And then when families are destroyed, when somebody goes ahead and violates how their parents raised them or thought they were raising them, and you have illegitimate children, we're not even going to say that's bad anymore. We're not even going to say marriage is a necessity. My, my husband is in the automobile business, and he said, you'd be amazed at how many couples come in who are not married, have no intention of marrying, and they have children. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you see this in day-to-day speech. You know, I uh, when I was in between churches, I took uh, I, I was living in the Atlanta area, uh, and I worked at a job at a I'll say a major telecommunications retail store. And the first time I had been in the quote secular workplace in over twenty years, and I was dumbstruck. I mean, I'm I'm working with people a lot younger than me, but I think the age range was roughly twenty to thirty-five. And I mean, the profanity that laced every conversation, and I don't mean a few of the softer words. I mean stuff that when I was a kid, if you dare say something like that, you'd go out in your backyard behind the barn by yourself and say it, you know. But this is just, and I, you see this in the television programs and the movies, just the most severe profanity has become ordinary. I was thinking about this as you were talking. One of the unknown or lesser known people for whom much of the responsibility can be laid, was a communist theoretician named Antonio Gramsci. Now, he was a a contemporary of Lenin and Trotsky. And uh, unlike some of the other, I don't know all the terminologies, but some of the other Marxist theorists, he didn't believe in taking over the state and forcing this, you know, workers' utopia into existence. His theory was that you've got to do it on a cultural basis. You've got to win it culturally first, and then you can move toward this flowering of the state's authority and all this. And one of his later followers called it the long march through the institutions. You know, Mao famously talked about the military long march, which is, you know, literal marching, you know, to various places to conquer for communism in China. Well, this was the idea that, no, we got to start in the universities, the colleges, the the schools, the churches, and, and this man was decided, he recognized very clearly, and this is the reason why he talked about it being a cultural battle, that religion and Christianity in particular were the biggest threat and the biggest obstacle. And as Henry Van Til used to say, or he said in one of his books, uh, culture is the externalization of religion. The, the idea that these things uh, that are in our way from realizing this, uh, I don't like to use the term communist or Marxist fascist, I think is the more accurate term for what we deal with today the idea of moving toward this utopia. Uh, We've got to brush aside these moral principles based on biblical Christianity and replace it with something else. And uh, we will do that through the schools, and they've largely succeeded through the media. Every conduit, every outlet. Maybe you've seen some of the same publicity. Churches that on paper would be considered solidly evangelical, you know, are now using terms like gay Christian. Uh, This would have have been unheard of just 20 years ago or less. And you mentioned the language and the profanity. The mindset or the ideology behind that is a violent, degrading one. Mm -hmm. If you just take the word that if you're in good company, you'll refer to as the F word, Mm -hmm. really talks about not intimate, loving, caring, 
Until Death Do Us Part, Through Better or Worse, and Sickness and Health. It is a gratification that has to do with the person who is doing the action. So with very little regard for the other. Is it any wonder that we have rampant abuse situations where people are crying and saying, um, I was abused or I was harassed or whatever? This is just part of the violent mindset that are behind words like that. And so what do you do? You let people think it's liberating and free and mature and grown up to live in that world, to expect that world, to be considered somehow or other prudish if you haven't experienced that world. And that's the progression of the, you're either going to be a slave to Christ or a slave to sin. Let me, let me give you another example of how that has progressed. I came across a YouTube video where some punk of a guy is on a college campus. I'm not sure where it was, but uh, he said he he had somebody filming him. He said, "I'm just going to ask some random girls if I can hook up with them." And so this and this was not rehearsed. I mean, you could clear, clearly see this was not. So this girl's coming down the steps, and he comes up and says, "Hey, you know, finals are over. Why don't you and I hook up?" And of course, for people who don't know, this has a very clear sexual connotation. This is what he's talking about, what he's asking for. And I was stunned. The, 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 the one girl, that, the, as long as I, the length of time that I watched it, her first response was, why do you have this camera here? Oh, he said, that's just for me. That's just for me. How, how about we hook up? What, what's the, what do you have the camera for? That's just for me. Come, come on, why don't we hook up? Her final response was, I prefer not to answer. <laughs> She didn't punch him in the nose. She didn't tell him to go fly a kite. Are you crazy? She just said, I prefer not to answer. And I could not yeah. believe that response. I mean, I don't know what self-respecting woman would simply say that to a guy rather than I've got a knife in my purse or a gun or my husband or my boyfriend. You better get out of here, pal. <laughs> but I'd rather right. I prefer not to answer. Come on. you know. So let me now make a comment that is going to cut across a lot of people's comfort zone. I'm talking about believers who can decry what you've just described, but have no cognizance of the fact that they accept this kind of thing daily. So we'd have to say that a lot of believers go to movies. Yes. And they'll watch a story that has two people who are married. So the story has them married and they are engaged in an intimate act. And Christians will say, but they're married. And you have to go, hold on a second. These people are not married. These people are fornicating. And whether or not the actual culmination of the sexual act happens, they're still crossing the line where the scripture says, this kind of behavior is reserved for a covenanted relationship. And not only are they doing that with people they're not married to, they have cameramen watching and audio people watching and the, the directors watching. So we already have some voyeurism going on and we become peeping toms ourselves. But we say it's only bad if in the story they're not married. As opposed to we're now just watching it and being entertained and we give ourselves this, this pat on the back that says, yeah, but it's not so bad. Because the story is saying they're married. Exactly. And that, uh, I think that's part of the, the great value that the enemies of biblical faith 
have found in the entertainment industry. The, the desire that we have to be entertained, and that's a legitimate desire on some level. God has given us and put us in the material world to enjoy it, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, as the catechism says. But we are given these substitutes, and in the process, we are being, quote, entertained by compromising almost at every point what God says is proper in just about any given area. I mean, you've mentioned one, but another big draw factor in many of these is, is vengeance, the, the, the revenge movie. You know, right. and there's, there's a proper way for vengeance to take place according to God's standard, but it's not what you see in these movies. And that creates, especially for men and young men, uh, an ideal of what manhood is all about and what it means to be truly masculine that is based on something profoundly unbiblical. The idea that your 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 manhood is is gauged by how many people you can kill with a gun or beat up in hand-to-hand combat and the bloodletting and the gore and all the rest of it. I think that's another thing, whereas the, the, the thing you mentioned is, is a direct attack on the morality of covenanted marriage. Just the entire idea that we as human beings are in the image of God, look at how most of these movies absolutely savage the human body. You know, it's not enough just to imply that in a Western, the guy got shot by an arrow, or in the, in the you know, um, mob crime movie, the guy got shot by a machine gun. Now we've got to see the body completely riddled with bullets and falling apart and, and gore, blood gushing, all this kind of stuff that is... The only purpose for it is to condition our minds to depreciate the value of the human body and the fact that we are created in God's image. That uh, There's no way around that. And because people don't read it anymore, I mean, a lot of those accounts could be very accurate. But instead of somebody reads and somebody understands point of view and maybe visualizes what that might look like, mm-hmm. we've now assaulted them with images and those images stick and they know they stick and you combine it with loud noise or music or whatever and now it's it's inculcated into your way of thinking and if you're not as bad as that you're okay but how many times when we see the relationship of a man and woman not in covenanted marriage how many christians say hmm the bible says that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. So do you think the image of Christ and his church is done severe damage to when we have degraded the analogous situation that he told us it is? Does, um, does, does God hook up with us? You know, <laughs> yeah. is, is that what that is? Yeah, I think that the problem is the damage has already been done to where, like you just said, how many people actually think that way. So they're already bringing a front-loaded depreciated uh, understanding of, of this issue so that you know, it doesn't phase them one way or the other. They never think about that kind of thing. I think uh, just to sort of put a, um, a turn on this as far as solution, there's, in spite of the somewhat pessimistic way we've been talking about this, and I, frankly, it requires it, this type of discussion. The optimism is, the, is we've seen in the fact that Time and again, we've seen societies over history have progressed in this direction, and they, they can't be sustained. Uh, they can't survive. And sooner or later, they will either be dominated by something even more powerful and evil, or they will collapse from within. That was a noted social critic, and I thought this was a, an astounding insight, is that especially with the ancient Roman Empire, when it began to totally decay, 
when you began to see what had been, for however pagan it was, the, 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 the family structure of the ancient Roman society and progressed to this, this corrupt government leadership, extreme statism, and the, and the collapse of that society, you began to see massing out on the edges of the empire these dark forces that were ready to come in and pounce. And that's exactly what happened. And we see the same thing to some extent happening in the world today with our own. So for, for those of us who follow a biblical worldview, this is reason for optimism and hope. Because just as in that same context, the only people that had a solution to what was going on in the dec- decay of that empire were the followers of Jesus. It is very much the same today. It is our duty to keep the torch lit and to pass it from one generation to the next so that when that time comes, we will have the solutions, we will have the answers that these people are inevitably going to be looking for. And it's going to be different. It's not going to be like it was in Rome. And we're not talking about, oh, we need to get back to how it was in 1942. I don't, I don't want that. We need to have God's vision for the future. I remember something is that uh, our optimism for the future is not based on man. It's based on God. Exactly. The Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? This isn't a doomsday question that the Bible is asking us. The answer is to reestablish the foundations, not make up new ones. Take the foundations that we were given, the rock of our salvation, and build on that. And not despise the fact that we seem to be so few. When we talk about what's the real question, The real question out of a lot of the questions that you get as a pastor and I get as a teacher is, what do we do about this? Well, we return to the Word of God, and then obviously we have to undo some bad education. So I know you and I have probably similar books on our library shelves. Can you recommend to those who are listening who we've gotten across the idea You have to think differently. Can you make some book suggestions that would be helpful to them in that pursuit? I'll recommend one in particular, uh, and this goes to the heart of some of the issues we started out talking with and some of the ones that we have discussed. It's a book called Our Threatened Freedom, A Christian View on the Menace of American Statism. And it's a series of very short essays by R.J. Rushdoony. This book is available uh, in both uh, e-format and also paperback. And it's a series of very short essays in which he addresses uh, some of the aspects of the decline of freedom in our culture and our society, and at the same time talks about the solutions and talks about the reasons as to why these things have come about. I strongly recommend that book. It's available on Amazon, so very easy to acquire. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Charles. I, I love talking with you, and hopefully our conversation has spurred some thinking. And I look forward to next time. Out of the Question, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.